Good afternoon, everybody. Evening. I'm confused because it's still daylight, but I'm happy about it. How are y'all today? Good. Welcome to Emmaus Way. My name is Brett. It's good to be back with y'all. Um, full disclosure, I've been uh, fighting some pretty severe laryngitis since I got back from the West Coast. Um, yesterday or last night, I had a show and it was the first time I've spoken since Tuesday. So um, I regret that we're not doing um, the gospel according to the wire anymore because I feel like I would have had a really good chance at my Tom Waits down in the hole. Um, but you'll have to just, you know, imagine. Um, we're going to start by singing a song together. And um, if you guys would help me out this week by singing really loud, that would be amazing. Um, <clears throat> so you don't have to hear my froggy thing going on here. sound that you want other people to sing along just sing what you feel don't let anyone say it's wrong and if you're trying to paint a picture but you're not sure which colors belong just paint what you see don't let anyone say it's wrong And if you're strung out like a kite Or stung awake in the night It's alright to be frightened Well, there's a light What light? There's a light One light There's a light White light inside of you. If you think you might need somebody to pick you up when you drag, don't lose sight of yourself. Don't let anyone change your back. If the whole world's singing your songs And all your paintings have been hung Just remember What was yours is everyone's from now on And that's not wrong or right But you can struggle with it all your life only get up tight Cause there's a light What light There's a light One light There's a light White light There's a light One light There's a light One light There's a light White light There's a light what light? There's a light. One light. There's a light. White light. There's a light. One light. There's a light. One 
there's a light, white light inside of I'm Tim, and welcome to Emmaus Way. Uh, I introduced myself, but I think I know almost everybody in the room. <laughs> this is, I think, the spring break version of Emmaus Way. In fact, out of fairness to you guys, I think we should switch. Uh, everybody that's in the chairs should hop down on the on the uh, on the carpet, and then you guys should hop in the chairs because there's more of you than us. What do you think? What's the deal? I kind of feel nervous, you know, I mean, I actually feel a little threatened at this point, but, uh, but, but you guys always lead us in a part of our liturgy, uh, it's our community prayer, sometimes it's a song, sometimes it's a prayer, this is our Lenten version, and um, are you guys ready to lead us? You are? All right, more troops here, yeah, I'm really frightened now. Um, all right, Joel, are you going to start us off today? Okay, buddy. Hear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Lord, guard my life, for I am devoted to you. You are my God, Savior, servant who trusts in you. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. You are forgiving and good, O Lord, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. Lord, have mercy. Thanks, guys. Y'all did great. Hey, it's good to have Brett Harris here tonight with us. We're going to play a little Brett Harris game tonight. Uh, name a U.S. city that has a population of more than 250,000. Randomly, just name one. Los Angeles. Brett has played there recently. <laughs> there okay, were not see that many people at that show. It was a small show, <laughs> a small but show. L.A. Somebody who's next? I'm, I missed that one? Dallas coming up. Yeah, next week. Next week. Yeah. Somebody try again. Tim, you're not making me feel better about this because it's all driving. <laughs> this guy has played a lot. We, we asked him on the way in, and his list of where he has played and where he's about to play is uh, phenomenal. But it's just a reminder of the amazing artists that we have. You were with Skylar um, last week, you said, on the West Coast. Yeah. And, um, so, Brett, it's always good to have you, and we're thankful. We know that sometimes there's been a few times when you've literally almost parachuted out of the jet to, uh, uh, to play for us on Sunday evenings. So, we're very thankful. It's good to be back. Yeah, it's always good about that. Hey, this is Emmaus Way. Most of you guys know this. We're a community of people that are committed to living and embodying the gospel in 
Durham and this greater, larger community around Durham. Uh, and we know that there's a lot of things we have to do to do that well. One is that we need to gather each week around each other and hear each other's voices. So we dialogue over scriptural text. Uh, we gather at the table because we understand the table is an opportunity to literally enact God's kingdom and anticipate it, but, but be in it. Uh, in the evening and meet Christ there. And, uh, and we know that missionally and the things that we do together, uh, we do things that are hopefully a part of what God's vision is for this community. And so uh, being with each other is, is critical to do that. I want to say a quick thanks to, uh, judging from the photos, SK, Ben, saw it, Emily, who did some painting yesterday with the reality. You guys, what did y'all do um, uh, the front here? Everything we could. Yeah, Chancey and Katrina too. Chancey Katrina. Katrina was taking photos, so I knew that she was involved there somehow. Uh, we just uh, painted the entryway foyer here and then the sort of gateway into our storage space. A lovely toad color. Nice. <laughs> I'm sure there's a name for it. Um, also, just want to mention, last week we had a fantastic Ecclesia meeting, which is just our gathering of the community. Um, um, SK and Emily, who are our lay leaders, uh, laid out a pretty aggressive agenda of things that are going to happen. We're going to talk a little bit about listening meetings tonight and as a part of the dialogue, but there's stuff coming up, uh, personnel, all that stuff. So I just want to say, um, stay tuned. Uh, uh, you know, uh, read the weekly carefully, uh, be on board with that. I don't know that there's anything coming up immediately, SK, but there's stuff happening. And so um, they, they really had some great plans for where we're going in the next three months to six months. Um, one other thing, a huge congratulations to one Josh Busman, who sent in his dissertation on, uh, on Friday. So now you're finished working you know, on that, Josh. So get to work now, buddy. Uh, SK, if you'll come up with a list from Josh, you know, 50, 60 hours next week, that would be great. But how did it feel, Josh? Feels good. Yeah. Now I have just a month to sort of like sit around and worry about the questions they're going to ask me. Exactly. Class, but yeah. I'm a little nervous about Josh getting a job, so I'm going to find that PDF somewhere and just delete it off of his computer, <laughs> off the, you know, I mean, just something like that. But Josh did a little video, a little happy dance, and uh, sent the button. So congratulations, Josh. It's fantastic. I hope that we'll have an opportunity for Josh to, to, to share some of the content of, of that because it's absolutely fantastic on. Um, on, on worship and uh, how, it's, how it forms people in our society, uh, particularly evangelical, uh, kind of the larger scale worship things. So, Josh, we're proud of you. Thanks. Brett, thank you for being here. We'll turn it back over to you. All right. Um, this is a song by one of my favorite writers. Um, that's Nick Lowe. And I have falsely attributed so many songs that he wrote to other people, so I'm going to get it right this time. Um, I think maybe Tim has led this song with you guys when he's been here, so hopefully you know it. There's a cool wind blowing in the sound of happy people At a party given for the gay and debonair There's an organ blowing in the breeze For the dancers hid behind the trees 
happen. I ain't never gonna see what's shaking on the hill. That I someday may be joining in his wishful thinking. Cause admission's only guaranteed to favored few. There's a guest list and plenty more in a long line leading to the door. So I'll never know for sure what's shaking on the hill. I'm too blue to be played with, and I get heartaches. So they tell me no dice. Isn't allowed in that carefree crowd to be seen with tears in your eyes. So I make out I don't want to know, but I'm the pretender. Kicking cans round while that happy sound keeps cracking on. Though I long so strong to be inside With the blues is where I do reside So I'll forever be denied What's shaking on the hill Though I long so strong to be inside With the blues is where I do reside so I'll forever be denied what's shaking on the hill. What's shaking on the hill. What's shaking on the hill. Um, this is one of those songs I never thought I'd get to play in a church. Um, it's not where I grew up, so... Um... You getting that at all, Josh? Is that yeah, kind of coming through? I can see. All right. I had to pick songs this week that were a little more suited to some gravel and growl and my lack of voice. That should be plenty there, sorry. So help me out again if you know it. Quite a while I was down the hall Just passing time Last time we met Was a low-lit room We were close together As a bride and groom We ate the food We drank the wine Everybody having a good time Except you You were talking End of the world I took your money I spiked your drink You miss too much these days If you 
stop to think You led me on with those innocent eyes You know I love the element of surprise In the garden I was playing the tart I kissed your lips and broke your heart You, you were acting as the end of the world Sorrows, but my sorrows they learned to swim. Surrounding me, going down on me, spilling over the brim. Waves of regret, waves of joy. I reached out for the one I tried to destroy. You, I sent you away. To the end of the world opportunity for us before we jump into the dialogue tonight to stand up and just greet the people that are around you. If you happen to see somebody that you don't know, please introduce yourself. Uh, offer them the peace of Christ. We're going to jump in uh, fairly quickly tonight on John 2 and then morph to 1 Corinthians 1. So if you want to take a second to read those texts, you certainly can do that during the piece as well. There's uh, Keenan reports, there's brownies over there, so that's a good thing to have, and uh, coffee and stuff. So feel free to go uh, grab something as well. Uh, So stand up and greet each other. So just as an introduction tonight, uh, we're going to morph our way from one text to another. And so I wonder if someone would start us out with a um, kind of a unique Lenten text. I think you'll get it as you hear it, but it's the John 2 text that's printed on your your handout. Would somebody just start us tonight by reading that? The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. 
He told those who were selling the doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume you. The Jews then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So, you know, we all have this friend who... You know, you know how dinner conversation goes. If there's like something really serious that you need to talk about, there's generally, you know, the rules that people follow. You talk about general stuff for 30, 45 minutes, and then you get to the question that might be looming there. Um, John is not that kind of writer. Um, uh, it, it, this is the second chapter of John's gospel, and, um, and immediately the possibility of a cuddly... Talladega Nights, Sweet Baby Jesus disappears immediately in this scene. And if you've read the Gospels, and I know not everybody has, but if you've read the Gospels, you know that this is a scene that happens late in the other Gospels. But John feels like it's time to say that almost immediately. So here we are in chapter 2, and Jesus is in kind of a rage running through um, the temple and casting out you know, uh, people who are changing money and doing commerce, all of those things. Uh, no suspense. We get an idea that Jesus is about radical change. Let me ask you a couple. This is a, the, the quick answer version of our dialogue tonight because we're going to really talk at greater length about 1 Corinthians. But Jesus is tearing down something. He's deconstructing something. Ironically, he's even told a story, a, a, a metaphor of deconstruction in terms of I can tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. Uh, so this is Jesus' mindset. That's what he's demonstrating. What is he tearing down in this rather bold, radical, impolite move of his? What are his victims? Well, I've heard that the Pharisees, or not the Pharisees, but there were money changers in the temple in the court of the Gentiles in order to sell um, animals to the Jews who would go on to make sacrifices. Okay, so he's going at kind of an economic, religious system. That's definitely a target here. What are some other targets? Yeah, there's something about, I mean, and John is kind of laying out a metaphor that he's actually implying that the real temple is Jesus's body rather than this structure. And so there is kind of a implication that a huge 
economic, religious structure. Not only just the way that one worships, but the way that one worships in terms of the commerce around this. Uh, it would be almost like going into Greensboro and saying, you will never get the ACC tournament again uh, in March, even though that generates, I'm sure, millions and millions and millions of dollars for a relatively small city. So he is going at a social structure um, hardcore. Second quick answer thing, what do you think he's making room for? If he's tearing something down and he's also got this metaphor of reconstruction, what might Jesus be making space for in this idea of things that he's tearing down? I think, Miriam, you're right there that he's not just deconstructing the location of where you meet God. And as Ben would say, who gets to arbitrate who meets God? But he's raising the question that maybe it happens in a different place and in a different way. Josh, let me put you on the spot tonight. Um, you and Brett chose music that was... Um, that tugged on kind of an apocalyptic vision, the U2 song. And then the Nick Lowe song was a really classed song. It implied that there's something shaking that other people don't have access to. So you want us to think a little bit about those type of, uh, of radical social change. Why did you do that tonight? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we looked at the, the Nick Lowe song, What's Shaken on the Hill, over the summer as a, a sort of way of thinking about this sort of like insider-outsider dynamic that we're often confronted with in the gospel. Um, and it, I like the way that it sort of inverts um, the, the idea that, I think that the, the line where the blues is where I do reside, sort of being a gospel moment of there are the privileged and the few over here but the, the poor, the outcast, the disenfranchised, this is a sort of another class, and this is where we most often see the kingdom of God sprouting up. And to me, the until the end of the world almost intensifies that by telling us sort of what's at stake in this conversation about sort of who gets into the party and who doesn't. This is not a, uh, not a sort of simple or uh, 
or uh, a conversation that has um, very little going on, right? This is something that has cosmic implications. Yeah, I mean, and that you draw that with Ben's comment and Mary Ann's comment, and you get the sense that this is not comfortable speech. These are not comfortable songs because they're challenging the idea of who has unique access and, and does one have access to that which really matters. And Jesus is implying that in this disruption of the religious system, that not only is something being done wrong, but he's actually creating space, Brian. It, it, it comes back to your comment as well that the, the uh, people who would have not been normal worshipers, Gentiles, others, have more access to God if the structures that would prevent them to get near worship are destroyed. So Jesus drops in like a bomb. There is nothing subtle in John's gospel. He is changing the world as we have it. Um, hold on to that because we're going to come back to that idea again. But notice that Jesus is rearranging a misunderstood, a mismanaged religious system for something that is more authentic, more real, more timely, or at least is in the future. And it does raise questions for us. I want us to sit in this text as a community tonight, as SK and Emily and others talked about us as a community that would be doing some intentional listening in our community. The types of questions that we would maybe talk about in that thing is how are we organized? Uh, what should be the structures of our life together, our staff together? What should our priorities be? And what is the true essence of this gospel that we say that we love every week? Those are the type of questions that I think we might be asking each other. And these are the questions that Jesus implies with a bomb and Paul certainly jumps on in a really appointed moment in the life of the church at Corinth and raises these questions. So we'll get to that in just a moment. Flip to your 1 Corinthians text. I'm going to have somebody read that in just a second. But let me set this one up. It's a short text. But the real issue here is, um, is factionalism. There are incredibly deep divisions in the church at Corinth. Now, I'm not entirely sure. Somebody might know. Brandon, you might know better than I or others. But I the church at Corinth would have involved a, a multiple gatherings of worshipers in, in various locations, homes, and otherwise. But it would have been the community of people that call themselves Christians. And by that point in time in the life of the church, that was developing a unique distinction. It was straining at its Jewish roots. It was exploring how to, what it meant to be Greek and Christian. Um, it, was, it was moving into new space. Um, but the issue is that the Corinthians have become deeply divided, even to the point of where they're naming their teachers. Uh, some are saying, I'm of Paul. Some are saying, I'm of Peter. Some are saying, I am of Apollos. Some are even saying, and isn't there always a group that basically co-ops God? And they're saying, well, we're just the God people. I mean, the rest of them are worried about Paul and Apollos, but we're the ones that Jesus speaks to directly. So that's another one of these groups. So it's, it's pretty nasty because in my experience, 30 years in church life, the minute somebody invokes God on their side, the conversation is effectively over at that point. You either agree or live in perdition. Uh, so it's nasty. So as you read this, consider that kind of divisive moment. And let me ask you this question before we jump into the text. Um, when you look at the world we live in, 
religiously, this is another quick answer, religiously or just otherwise, what are the divisions in our society that, if any, that scare the bejesus out of you? What scares you in terms of a divisive world? You could have. <laughs> my answer to this question is when I read my news feed. By the way, why am I not friends with any of you folks? But the 2,000 people that are there scare the bejesus out of me because they're usually talking about Jesus, and then the second part of the sentence does scare the crap out of me. Uh, but, but Brian, you, you make a phenomenal point that many experience the world in a lens of pain or deprivation, or illness that makes you different from others. And you wonder, you wonder if the world is working only for people that aren't facing the thing that you're facing. And then you start counting noses, and you realize that there's probably more in your category than others. I think that's very true. And I appreciate the, the Nick Lowe song was, I think Josh and I were talking about that earlier this week. Other divisions you see in our society that scare you or concern you. My son goes to a school where he is almost the only white kid in the whole school. They are the average person. And it's embarrassing. That astonishes me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, being around people who study education. Uh, the reality of, and this is really undisputable, I think, in terms of numbers, we are more segregated now in America than we were in 1964 when we desegregated America. I mean, so to some degree, um, and, and we have literally systems in North Carolina that are explicitly designed toward racial segregation in schooling. That's not the words they use, but we do live in a society where it is easy not to encounter someone uh, who is of a different race or a different social class unless you work really hard to do that. Sure, Brandon. Yeah, just, uh, it's hard to think of that question. It's hard to think of any other answer this week in light of celebrating the anniversary of Selma and, and those events, you know, as well as the Department of Justice report about Ferguson that came out at the same time, I think. In some ways, especially um, powerful symbolism of having the president and, and former presidents as well, and, and John Lewis and others sort of reenact that moment, reminds us of, of that it was bloody, but in some ways we've, we've come a long way, and then at the same time we get this report about Ferguson that reminds us, um, and it's not just Ferguson, but Cleveland and so many other cities that we haven't come that far. Yeah, I, 
I think about this all the time. I'm, in the sense that my research is on uh, an ethnography of the moral movement in North Carolina. So I'm listening to the rhetoric a lot. And the first thing you hear about the rhetoric is a theological lament of regression. That, that the 64 to 68 is looked at as high water rather than, uh, than the start of something big. And, and that's pretty frightening. So keep those lenses in your mind. I'll, I'll tell you one other one that scares me is that, or, or I don't know that I would have cared a crap about this 30 years ago, but the idea that if we left tonight or had gotten up this morning and just wanted to go to churches and take communion, the, 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 the typical Emmaus wearer would have been appropriate to take communion at what percentage of churches? What would you say, Andrew? Yeah, yeah, because they'll take anybody. Yeah, you know, just ask them. You know, they'll look at you. No, I mean, you know, there's just the, the sense that we live today in a divided communion where the people that we might be most concerned about are other people that might call themselves Christian. And I use the term we loosely. But we live in a world where a lot of people, I grew up in a tradition where it kind of was that deep fundamentalist Baptist free church tradition where it was kind of a race to find out who was the most right. And so thinking about everybody else as being partially wrong was kind of part of the game. But, you know, 40 years later, I look at that and go, oh, my goodness, the people who might be building a kingdom together don't like each other the most. And that seems very unlikely. So keep those lenses in mind. Somebody read 1 Corinthians now. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will pour. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the sage? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Let me confess a deep prejudice about this text. And it's not really about the text at all, but I've never liked this text. And I can tell you why. I, I grew up, some of you maybe have this similar, I grew up in a very anti-intellectual kind of Christianity. So this was the ultimate trump card. If somebody pulled out something on global warming or sustainability or ecumenism or just letting women wear pants to church, uh, uh, no matter what, somebody would come with that verse. And just say, all those thinking people, they're talking about you, by the way, you know, all those people and the jobs that you guys have and what you do, they're just sitting around thinking about stuff. And the more that they think about stuff, the farther the way they get from the gospel. 
Now, I was like a little bit of a nerdy kid in a rural time. My, my uh, nickname by the time I was 14 was College Boy. At the, uh, in, in the, my, my uncle owned a steel fabricating plant. He was the wealthy, blue-collar millionaire, sixth-grade education that employed half the, that part of the county, and I was the college boy. And literally, the joke always was, they would always like, I, I swear they made up tools for me to go find, to watch me look for them so that they could laugh at me. Because, you know, college boys can't find a confabulator or whatever that, I mean, but that's the kind of world I grew up in. So this text, I just, it makes my skin crawl. Mark and Josh and I talked about this in L. On on uh, on Tuesday morning, and I confess I just don't like this text because it's a huge trump card to thinking about it, and I don't think that's what it's about. But I, but my skin just I'm a little funky just kind of raising it, uh, and that's maybe what's good about the lectionary is you you're forced to talk about things you don't like talking about. But I'm going to throw it back to you, and and this is a subtle question. Remember. Paul is writing to a congregation, a community that's deeply divided. At least four teams that we've named. And he's got a team. There's some people running around saying we're the emergent church or we're the Baptist or we're the real fundamentalist or we're the ones who know, you know, whatever it is. He's got a team. Um, This is a subtle question. But do you notice something that's missing in this text That's hard to find something missing. But he does not mention something that he might have mentioned in the writing of this text. I thought it was interesting he said we proclaim Christ crucified, but he doesn't say resurrected. Okay. Uh, Yeah, there's there's not a there that's very true. And, and as we'll get to it, that image of crucifixion is the one that dominates the text. I think with reason. What else is missing? He doesn't say much about the well-behaved. Yeah, there's not, I'm not sure there are any. I'm going to put Davyford back on the spot. In the pantheon of basketball, there's good and there's evil. Name evil. Well, I hate to say it because we just lost to him. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's well known. There is, I mean, like Keenan said this last night at the game. We're watching with friends over, and I behaved so badly. There's not, there's not enough penance to retract the number of profanities that I spewed last night. I mean, I can't, there's not a rock big enough to roll. But at one point, Keenan says, I want to detach, but it's good versus evil. I mean, that's, that's the only way to see it. Um, so what, what did Paul not do? He didn't name who was wrong. I mean, it was so easy to say it's those blasted Pentecostals. I hate those guys. Or those Catholics. Or, I don't know, I mean, those Unitarians. There's, there, there's just so many people that could be named. You could at least rank them and say, we're choosing between these two groups. The other two suck. You know, but he does not do that. It's absent. He does not weigh in this text on People who teach something other than what he teaches. So now, what's negative in the text? What is the wisdom of the world? 
What do you think is the thing that makes Paul's skin crawl? I think there's multiple answers to this question, and I don't think any of them are clear, by the way. I, but, I wonder, because um, when you asked your first question about what sort of things I see, and the racial is def- disparity is definitely one of them, but socioeconomic disparity is another part, and sometimes that goes hand in hand, but I don't know, when I was reading this, I was thinking, the whys are the people that have set up these structures, that who's supposed to with who, and who's, not, who's in and who's out, and you know who participates and who doesn't, so maybe he's calling out that kind of wisdom as being foolishness. Yeah, it's kind of the most shocking history lesson that I got in my first class in college, where a professor walked in the room and he said, by the way, all the history you read was written by the winners. <laughs> Those who lost would have written something different. And so there is, there is a deep sense of exclusion based on the nature of wisdom. And we've probably all played that game. Uh, with somebody who was arguing with us about something and we just said, if you just understood it, you'd understand that I'm right. But I think there's something deeply wrong in that use of the term wisdom. It's wisdom, we've seen it. Wisdom, Bible, theology, all of those things can be turned into a weapon almost instantly. What else is this wisdom that he loathes? Specifically mentions... <clears throat> the debater of this age, so that um, the particular people who were teaching in the equivalent of universities in Corinth at this time were not the heirs of Plato and Aristotle. They were the people who, who, who Plato and Aristotle used to verify, which is the people who taught rhetoric. And people who taught rhetoric would be really, really pretty well at home in our secular universities now because they were like, it's not about morality, it's about technique. We will teach you a technique to achieve what you want, to persuade people um, in politics to go to war, to persuade people um, in court to win a court case, uh, uh, in, in arts to, you know, to, to sing a, a song or, or write a poem that is pleasing or flattering to your listener, which isn't, of course, the mass audience we have now. It's like the guy with a lot of money and the ability to put you to death. Um, and so... Although he's obviously aiming, painting with a very broad brush, if he's thinking one of the targets is the people who are good at rhetoric, because they're deploying wisdom and um, persuasion for objectives they've already decided. And pretty much all of them, everything that's set to the academy outside of the hard sciences thinks that's a good idea. You don't start... You st- you start with your values you already have and then you deploy these techniques like marketing, communications, economics to achieve objectives that never get debated. And so, except I guess in some of this work you and perhaps Josh Fassman too, but apart from some humanities, you never get to talk about the bad news. Everything else, business school, law school, it's all about achieving objectives and you never debated objectives are worthwhile. So this is coming from a lawyer. <laughs> and, and I don't know if we'll get there today, but what's interesting about that comment is Paul's actually writing with a rhetorical device, one that would have been well known in the times of his day. He's going to turn that on their head. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, 
If somebody came up with, I was listening to on NPR on the drive over the, the origin of the polio vaccine. If someone came up with a polio vaccine, um, would he be angry at that person and call that the wisdom of the world, you think? No. And the wisdom of the world would be what people said to, the, to Sachs, who came up with a polio vaccine. Why didn't you patent it? You could have made a fortune. And he said, no way, I couldn't patent this. It would be like patenting the sun. It would be depriving all the people who need this drug. The wisdom of the world would have said, make money. You can get rid of polio and make money at the same time. Oh, sure, a couple of million people die because they won't get the vaccine in time. But, you know, that's the wisdom of the world. And I think he's aiming very specifically at that self-interested wisdom. Yeah, so this is not a text against college girl and boy around the room here. The, the, the things that you've studied and learned are not being impugned in this. Actually, I, I think, I weigh in here, I think that one thing is really, really unique. There's one aspect of wisdom that Paul is deeply concerned about, and it's theology. Who gets to say who God is and what God does? That seems to be the primary issue at Corinth. And it gets back to the comment that I made that theology, Bible, and religion are three of the most powerful weapons in the world that we have. And even today, as I was preparing this week, I was thinking about um, fundamentalisms. And I mean by that writ large, uh, reading of sacred text in a way that excludes or empowers violence in Christian, Islamic, Jewish, any organized religion is one of the greatest problems in our world today. So I think that this is one of the things that Paul's deeply concerned about, is these people are saying, I understand what God is all about. I know what God is doing in the world. He used to have a friend who was a wilderness instructor. And whenever we were on the trail with him, uh, people would ask Dave, what's the weather going to be tomorrow? As if he had some control over the weather. And he had the same answer to that question every time. Only dudes and fools predict the weather. I mean, if you're going to predict the weather, you must be a dude of monumental proportions. It's going to rain tomorrow at 11. Or you must be a fool of the greatest foolish proportions ever. In other words, no one talks about what the weather. You're not in charge of the weather. But in some ways, the people at Corinth have become in charge of God. Now, what might God's wisdom be? And this is, and I, I'm, I asked that question understanding that in some degree, Paul's answer to that question is not in this text. And if we were really going to read it fairly, we would have read 1 Corinthians 1 through 4, four chapters. Because the next chapter really has more of an answer to that question. But what is the wisdom of God? If fools and dudes are the people who craft the fundamentalist type of narratives that say, I'm absolutely sure of what God is doing and what it means for you. You can invert that. You can work it backwards and say, what would wisdom be? If that's the opposite of wisdom, what might it be? What would its techniques, what does it look like attitudinally? What is it? And you can cheat and read 
First Corinthians 2 if you want to right now and get some good answers. But you've got your smartphone. That's where he says, we, proclaim, we don't not use wise and persuasive words. We proclaim Christ crucified. So we're back to Dave's point. There's something about crucifixion and not resurrection in this case that's absolutely central to the wisdom of God. Because Dave was right. Resurrection does not appear here. Sacrifice or That's a really good 90 seconds on what 1 Corinthians is all about. I mean, I think that's exactly what Paul is... I mean, to some degree, go... I mean, this is a horrible joke to do. I mean, but if you went to your friends, so, you know, society, and said, you're sick, you're dying, you're divorcing, your kids aren't above average, whatever you want to say, right? What kind of answer, what kind of look do you get from a lot of people in our society? What did you do wrong? Did you not read enough to them? Did you not uh, pray enough? I mean, you mark yourself as out of the flow of the world we live in by having, as Brian said, something that's not working very well in your life. Corinthians inverts that, doesn't it? By saying that this whole image of the cruciform, this idea of painful sacrifice and coming near that which is broken, that's where wisdom lies. The impulse that we have is to get as far away as we can from someone who suffers. But it seems to be in Corinthians that wisdom lies in doing just the opposite. Taking the posture of one who gives up what they have. It's a point that Wendy's made many times in our dialogues. That is significant. Sure, Josh. Yeah, following on that, there's a, there's a great book by a guy named Jack Caputo called The Weakness of God. And he takes the title from that last line of this passage. And he talks about, sort of like you were talking about, Amanda, the way in which this sort of idea of weakness gets used as a way of like hiding strength or feigning weakness in order to hide. So you essentially turn the other cheek because that's the best way to come back with an uppercut. Like, a humble you know, brag. So, right, so Jesus dies on the cross, but he only does it so that at the end of time, he comes back on the horse and the sword and just lays waste to everything. It's a Monty Python scene exactly. of running through everyone who refused to worship. Right, and the sort of conceit of this book, The Weakness of God, is like, what if this turning the other cheek, what if this sort of weakness that we would identify in the world's words is really what God is like and is what God is calling us to be like. And I think that's the really provocative question that we're faced with. And I think the value of those two points is, as I read this, that seems to be exactly what Paul was saying. This is the stuff that he said that Jews and Greeks said 
that is not only preposterous, it's offensive, and I refuse to follow this. And by the way, Apollos had this incredible quote today uh, on, on, the, on the big screen that said this. You know, and, and so that's, that's the thing that Paul is saying that makes them want to wretch because God shouldn't act that way. That's the dilemma that we're left with is that God acted that way in terms of dying and has invited us into that posture. Let's have, before we end, a little bit of fun on this. Let's, let's take aim at self-righteousness. So I'm going to preach this sermon a little bit. So let me tell you about the Jews. And you guys know about Jews, right? I mean, you can't trust them, right? And the problem with Jews religiously is that they're looking for some unbelievable sign, right? And they had a Messiah, and what did they do with the Messiah? They killed him. I mean, we, we're going we're to have centuries of European racism based on that important theological truth. If you're Jewish, flee. Now, Greeks, the problem with Greeks is they're constantly doing what Andrew's talking about. They don't invent anything. They don't do anything. They just talk about the things that other people do. Therefore, they come up with these sophisticated theological constructions. They say crap like the weakness of God. And who, I mean, who would say that kind of stuff other than some sort of doctoral student? You know, I mean, who would say that? Who would care about that? Who would read Jack Caputo? I mean, it's not significant. Uh, that's actually a good question. <laughs> so these people are miserable. Let's agree. Can I get an amen on this? Jews are miserable. Greeks are miserable. Now, who's great? We are. We are not Jews and we are not Greeks. Apologies. There probably is somebody who's Jewish in the room. Somebody's Greek. We are good. We have got it good. This is the rhetorical device that Paul did is he told them for a chapter how miserable the Jews were and how miserable the Greeks are. And even to the point that scholars think that somebody else wrote this text because it's not addressing factionalism. He set up factionalism and he drifts in a sermon about why these people don't have it right. Everybody's reading it and they're going, thank God, we are the ones who have it right. And then we get to the end of chapter 2 where he talks about what it really means to follow God. It's not having it right. It's sacrificing. It's dying. It is understanding that one's suffering reflects the love of a suffering God. Uh, he begins to wax. And where do, and it's, I think of SK's excellent Picha Kucha talk, is that what, how does one know what God's up to? You don't speak for God. You listen to God. You listen. You pray. You know that you don't know. You refuse to be a dude who's telling other people what God is doing. And you get to that point and you're thinking, okay, this is feeling a little uncomfortable, but I don't think he's talking about me. I'm pretty sure he's talking about the Rodenizers here. Uh, and then you get to chapter 3 and all of a sudden he turns it right back to factionalism and we see one of the most hilarious 
Greek rhetorical things is changing the subject to create a parallel that makes you feel good about yourself until you finally catch on that you are the parallel. You are the one who is failing. And so that's what's so powerful about this dynamic is that what Paul has done in his writing is he's taken the religious people and he's indicted them as the people who don't know what the wisdom of God is like because it's not that it's that hard to figure out. It's just that who would want to do it in the first place? Who would want to, in some ways, embrace one's suffering as an opportunity to know the character of God? Who wants to give stuff up in an accumulation-oriented society? A society that basically says it implodes if we quit accumulating. This is the game that Paul is playing here. And it's an absolutely beautiful, beautiful text. If you're interested in this, you know, I've been lifting these kind of articles from text week and uh, that you guys have access to. But if you want to read a good article on this, I've got like an easy-to-read 15-pager that makes this argument through 1 Corinthians 1-4 to that I think you would enjoy reading. So email me if you want it, and I will send it to you. It's one of those that you have, you have to have like a, a school EDU address to have access to, but I will send it to you. But what a beautiful, beautiful text that tells us that it's something entirely different. Now, let me set this up as as we end right now, but one of the things that I would like for you to think about is if the following of God is setting aside one's power, and if you remember about some of these were around two or three years ago, we did 2 Corinthians, which is a powerful book in the Bible, one that takes this image of the cruciform, letting go of what one might claim as their power, as the, the, the true act of spiritual formation. Um, if that's what we're trying to do over and against every impulse that we have to be right, to be smarter, to have secret knowledge, to be able to read Jack Caputo and understand it, uh, whatever it is, um, if, if, we're, if we're doing that, then how does it shape us as a community? If we're building something, And we're not imagining that Jesus is coming in and destroying it, tearing it down, uh, telling stories about rebuilding something better in three days. What would we build? And as SK and Emily said last week, we're going to start a season of discernment and listening in our community. And it's an exciting time for us. There's just so many great things about life in Emmaus Way right now in terms of the deep, rich fabric of friendships, the way that you care for each other, the way that we've been missionally engaged. But a lot of us have discerned that we're at the end of one chapter and we're moving into another chapter in terms of our life together. So there's new stuff that we can do, new things that we probably didn't do well in the first chapter that we can do better. So um, starting next week, I'll see if I can pull this up on my iPad, by the way, while I'm saying this, uh, we're going to do a, um, a listening session for Durham Can. Um, and Durham Can is doing this kind of all over town. Uh, we're at kind of the end of the season, but um, we are going to think about what does it mean for our community missionally? Who should we be standing with? What issues and things should we care about? What should we sacrifice about? So let me give you just a couple of questions. um, That that and uh, this is coming from Can, but this will be our dialogue next week. Uh, It's a great way for all of us to participate in this. Um, 
We're going to share with others a story where you felt most proud to be in this community. What's something that made you most proud to be in their community? Um, is there something that this church should stand for and with for the people in this community? Something that we should be more vocal about because of who is in our community? Another question. If this church were to have the power to change something in the community for its members, what would it be? And then maybe for us, because we acknowledge that we're probably one of the more privileged groups participating in this, um, what are the pressures of our community and what should we stand for that doesn't impact us negatively at all? What should we, this is where the cruciform part comes in. What do we engage that we're, we're winning on, but we feel like we need to step in and say, even though I've got the winning ticket on this, I think the game shouldn't play that way. So those are going to be our questions. We're going to do that in a mixture of small groups and large group conversation. The small groups to make sure that everybody gets a chance to talk. Um, and we'll, we'll figure out how to record that. We may even have a special guest on, uh, on the screen. We're hoping that Dan Rhodes is going to be able to lead part of this. So um, he and I are both very interested in this process as a life. And then Emily and SK can tell us more. But I, if I have this right, this will be kind of a... A, a reminding and a learning way that we'll step into listening sessions in, in our community. SK, do you have like an idea of how that will work yet, or is that too premature of a question of what you're imagining? for? It's a bit premature, and I'm hoping to learn from next Sunday as well, because I participated in the last ones, but um, I'd love to learn from Ken and how we can apply that here. And so what that means is maybe you could talk to lead team people uh, after we do this next week and say, here's a great way for us to do this as a community ourselves. Because as we're scripting the next step, um, I would love for us to keep Paul's sharp critique, rhetoric, vision of 1 Corinthians in our mind, but then figure out how we embody that in our life. So this is great. It's a great season. It's a great time. And I'm excited to kind of be along for the ride with you guys on this. Um, what we'll do now is we're going to morph into both confession and absolution. Josh, do you have an insight for us in terms of the music tonight, in terms of confession and absolution? Um, yeah, not, not, not a whole lot. The song of confession is a sort of traditional lit song from the 19th century. Um, and then the song of absolution sort of talks about this opening up of uh, opening up of space that happens in the kind of deconstruction that Jesus is talking about. And I'll talk a little bit about it when I call it to the table. And I'm realizing, and every week I look at my notes and forget something that I meant to ask. Here's a question that I didn't ask tonight and I meant to, was simply, what have you opened space for in your own life in terms of your Lenten practice? And so I actually want to throw that out as a different way, as as we go to the table after confession and absolution, if you're willing, I would love for you to share with the people that you're around or the piece of person that you came with or somebody across the room, if you've opened space for something new in your life, um, if you've created space like Jesus was doing at the temple, and it might be small and it might be large, what is that thing and how is it transformative to you? So I, I would love to throw that question into the community. It would be fantastic if, you, uh, if, if you're in a home group this week and it comes up there. That would be wonderful, too. And Brett, we are truly thankful to have you with us uh, this, uh, this evening.
led him to Pilate's bar. Not a word, not a word, not a word. They led him to Pilate's bar. Not a word, not a word, not a word. Some higher ground 
got some fear to get around You can say what you don't know Later on won't work no more Last time through I hit my tracks So that I could knock it back Yeah, my way was hard to find Can't sell yourself a piece of mind Square one, my slate is clear Rest your head on me, my dear Took a world of trouble Took a world of tears Took a long time To get back here Tried so hard to stand alone Struggled to see past my nose Always had more dogs and bones I could never wear those clothes It's a dark victory You won and you also lost You were satisfied But it never came across Square one, my slate is clear Rest your head on me, my dear Took a world of trouble Took a world of tears Took a long time To get back here I think there's a sense in which that absolution song is almost a little counterintuitive because we seem to have ended up back where we started, right, at square one. But I, I was thinking about that song this week um, because of this sort of discussion we've had tonight about the way in which sort of deconstructing and tearing down opens up new spaces. It, it creates new space for things to happen. Um, I had We had some people over last night to watch the Battle of Good and Evil, and... Um, <clears throat> Several people were asking, like, oh, you sent off your dissertations, like, what did you do, you know, like, after you did it? And it was funny because the things that I did after we did it was, like, we finally, like, because Sarah has been in the middle of midterms as well, right? This is spring break, finally this week. So it was like we cleaned the house for the first time. We didn't have any groceries. The Eferts had to bring us dinner one night this week because we had nothing in the house to eat. So it was, it was sort of like resetting into like more of a human lifestyle rather than the sort of animal lifestyle I'd had to cultivate when I was finishing the dissertation. And there was a way in which that was like an extraordinarily exciting and sort of redemptive moment to like just set the groundwork to sort of be back at square one. Like... Okay, we have a vacuum that works again. That's exciting. <laughs> we, you know, there aren't dishes piled up. There isn't. So I, I think if, if nothing else, that's something that we get offered at the table every week. And that's one of the most sort of countercultural functions that we posit for the table. 
as Tim was saying, we live in a culture that's very interested in fencing the table off for the party on the hill, for the people who sort of get it, uh, for the insiders, and yet we believe that the table is a place where we really have sort of level ground to encounter one another, and that that's a pretty radical thing to have. That we actually, all of us, regardless of our background, regardless of where we find ourselves, regardless of age, of race, of gender, we get to find ourselves sort of at square one together when we take the Eucharist together. So as you come, as you break bread, saying the body of Christ broken for you, as you pour wine or juice, saying the blood of Christ shed for you, uh, be excited that you find yourself tonight at square one. Welcome to the table.